Open your Bibles this morning again to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. God has not called me to entertain you. He's called me to exhort you and warn you, teach you and press you, and insist that we set the Lord Jesus Christ always before our face. I want to have a ministry that's like the Apostle Paul's. I determine not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And if that's a narrow ministry... May God help us to stay on the straight and narrow way. Amen. Because we want it to be just that narrow Amen. as the Lord Jesus Christ. I labor this morning under a pretty severe physical burden and some chemicals to boot on top of that so that I can be here with my physical burden. But I don't want you to, I don't ask for any pity just for your prayers and for your attention. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, Amen. and to die is gain. Yes. As I asked last Lord's Day, for to you to live is what? Christ. Should be Christ. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. If Christ is your life, death is gain. Amen. The worst becomes the best, Amen. because it's gain. If we're living for Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just over a page or two. And see why God gave the ministry. I just want to show you again the apostolic emphasis on setting Jesus Christ up and us living for Him. In Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus Christ has ascended up on high in verses 8 through 10. And He gave gifts to the church, verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then in verses 12 down through verse 16, he describes the purpose of those gifts. And I want to read verse 13. Here's the purpose of the ministry. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. That is my ministry. That is what I have to say to you this morning. The two thoughts, the two themes, the two goals I had last Sunday are both in this verse. I must teach you the knowledge of the Son of God, and you must desire that knowledge and seek that knowledge. That's the first half of the verse. And the second half of the verse is that I can form Christ in you and me until we measure up to the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ so that we look like Him. Amen. We first want to know Him. The second, Secondly, we want to live like Him. Right. Amen. And it's all in verse 13. And it's why we have the ministry. Amen. As I said last Lord's Day, I could tickle your ears with all sorts of doctrine. But brethren, the devils know all the doctrine. Right. But the devils... Do not worship the Lord Jesus Christ by choice. They worship Him out of fear. We worship Him by choice and by love. And that's what we have to keep always before us as our primary goal. Right here, the knowledge of the Son of God and then the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ that we might fully measure up to living like Him. Lots of little Christs 
in the sense of being Christians and looking like Him. You know, in Acts chapter 11, it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, that was a derogatory term. It was not derogatory to us. Because it's a recognition that we're living and talking all about and like Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's why they were called Christians. All they wanted to talk about was this Jesus the Christ. All they live like is Jesus the Christ. And so they were called Christians. The question has been asked, if it became a crime in our nation to be a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Is that barely true or abundantly true in your life? That we speak of Christ. We live for Christ. We measure all things by Christ. And our goal is to know Christ better. That's what it ought to be. I would hope that there'd be so much evidence that they'd easily convict you and you'd be able to suffer for your Christ. You'll be bored with this sermon if your heart isn't right with the Lord and if you're not a child of God. If your heart is right with the Lord and you're a child of God, then I hope that you can see by the weight of Scripture that this is what we want for our souls. And if your soul is dull and cold, which our souls are often dull and cold, then repent of that right now and ask Him for the Holy Spirit to enlarge your heart. And we want enlarged hearts. Doctors don't think that's good for us. But in the Bible, an enlarged heart is a good thing. Because it's a, the heart is the seat of our affections, and we want more of them. Amen. We want a big heart, full of affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for that. And then listen. And let's remind ourselves of the simplicity of a Christian life, but how that Christ is the center of it at all times. Right. The center. Do we have Christ-centric lives? Is our question and our desire. Last Sunday, I started down through the things that we need to do to have a Christ-centered life. The first one was to make that choice. The Lord Jesus Christ made it relative to God as Father. I have set the Lord always before me. And that was a choice. Paul made a choice. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I've made that determination. Have you made that determination? Do we have a daily determination? Today is for Jesus Christ. Today I will set the Lord before my face. The first way, the first act, the first step of living a Christ-centered life is to make that choice. I want a Christ-centered life. I will have a Christ-centered life. He is worthy of my whole life. He gave Himself for me. What have I given for Him? I will give Him my life, as we just sang. It's a choice. We measure the love of anything by how much we think about it, how much we talk about it, how much we daydream about it, what we're willing to pay for it, what we'll give up to have it. How do you measure your love of Christ by all those things? Is He the chief aim of your life? Do we set Him before us? When you go to pray, which is our second point, when you go to pray, do you pray that you might know Him? That is the moment when we make that choice. When we get, if you're taking the choice, if you're making the choice to get down and pray, and in that prayer, 
you are telling the Lord, my chief request, if you might give me my chief request, O Lord, it's to know you better. That is to make your life a Christ-centered life. But do you pray that way? The first thing we do is to make the choice. I don't want a life that is content with going to church on Sundays. I don't want a life that's content that we have the true doctrine. I don't want a life that's content with, of course I'm a Christian. I don't want a life that has a form of godliness, but doesn't really have any power or authority, that hasn't really set Christ before it. That's the choice. And then we pray and beg God for that. Look at 1 John chapter 5. Let me go to a different reference than I used last Sunday. 1 John 5, 20. Last Sunday I went to John 17, verse 3, and we find out, we found out why God saved us. Do you remember? Why were we saved? Because he felt sorry for little humans spending an eternity in hell? No. The reason I want to reemphasize this is you would not believe how much of so-called Christendom is mistaken even about the gift of eternal life. They think it's because God felt sorry for sinners. God didn't feel sorry for sinners in His justice and in His holiness and in His love. There is no pity for sinners. That's right. Because His love can only love a holy object. Right. When it is a defiled and a profane object like sinners, He hates them. Doesn't the Bible declare us that over and over again? Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.5 5. He did not save us as remedial cure because he felt sorry for us. He saved us in order that he would have some beings throughout eternity that would bless and praise him for the incredibly infinite gift of his grace in saving them over the fallen angels. I cannot ever fully grasp nor communicate to you the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was made lower than the angels, but exalted above them. As soon as the devil had a chance at the Lord Jesus Christ, during those 40 days of fasting when he was very hungry, he went after... Now, the, the devil had never found any trouble in convincing a man to sin. Very seldom did he run into anyone that could resist his temptations. And he went after the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ defeated him gloriously. And then he died on the cross where Satan thought he finally had him. And in that very act, he destroyed the works of the devil. Amen. Right. That devil is going to have to witness someday that creatures like you and me, millions and millions of which could never match him if we combined our intellects and our strength, were saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was not. That is the ultimate display of the wrath and justice of God and the pureness of his love and mercy. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God, and eternal life. This is the true God and eternal life that we might know him that is true and we are in him that is true even in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he saved us. So, 
If we believe that we're saved, and we look in the Word of God, and we see the doctrines of election, and regeneration, and justification, and sanctification, and glorification, and we say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul, and we sing it. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. And that's all. That we're thankful that we know those great doctrinal themes of the Bible, but we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him and seek to know Him more, we're not fulfilling the purpose of our eternal life. Now, He'll take care of that in glory. You won't worry about knowing anything else when you're there. But for now, we want to see in the Word of God that eternal life is for us to know Him. Turn back just a few pages. I could give you so many illustrations of this particular point. Just the first chapter of First John. I want to show you how important it was to the apostles that we get to know the God that has saved us and His Son, Jesus Christ. Right, it's the great pressing theme of the Bible. Everything else, and I'm going to basically tell you everything else today, that we do in our Christian walk is all serving that purpose that we saw in Ephesians 4 and verse 13, to know the Son of God and to live like Him. Right. All of it is moving in that one great direction. First John chapter 1, look what this epistle, this apostle wrote here. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. That is not the Bible. Right. You haven't heard the Bible. Anyway, you'll see that it's not the Bible. Anyway, it's the word of life. It's the word of God that in the beginning was and was with God. Verse 2, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. That is the purpose of the New Testament, and if a ministry isn't pressing that, it's missing the great purpose of salvation in the New Testament. All the apostles were pressing this. We knew Him. We saw Him. We heard Him. We handled Him. We hugged Him. This particular apostle laid on his bosom when they would eat in their reclining position that was common in those days. And he said, we declare unto you that eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested to us, we know him. We've seen him. Right. And we want you to have fellowship with him along with us, that your joy might be full. This is the gladness of heart. This is the rejoicing tongue. These are the pleasures forevermore of a child of God in finding and seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. He was once humiliated, but now he's glorified. Amen. We're going to remember tonight his humiliation and his death, but brethren, he is not dead. He is alive forevermore. Amen. And he holds the keys of death and of hell. Right. He opens and no man shuts, and he shuts and no man opens. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you know Him this morning, and do you want to know Him better? The first thing we do is we make the decision, I want Jesus Christ to be the purpose for my life. And if we're not making that as a church and as individuals, then we have failed, and I have failed as your pastor. And so I press on. 
Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Have we made that choice? When we make that choice, that Jesus Christ deserves my praise and my honor and my life, even if He sends my soul to hell, His righteous law approves it well, and He is my Creator, so I still owe Him my life. But not only is He our Creator, He's our Savior. And He's going to own us as His brothers and sisters one day soon. So therefore, we have a double reason that we should give our lives and live our lives for Him. We then seek the Lord, as I mentioned last Sunday. We pray and beg God to show us Himself and to draw near to us as we draw near to Him. In that prayer of seeking God, we must confess our sins because it is sin that separates God from us. And we want no separation. We want fellowship. Right. If we're hiding the least little sin and protecting it because we enjoy it, our, fa- our pet sins, our favorite sins, maybe sins of thought and fantasy, they're not that bad. No one gets hurt by your little sins of thought and fantasy. The Lord Jesus Christ is hurt and offended by it, and His Spirit is grieved and quenched by it, and you are destroying your life by it. Right. What a waste. We confess our sins. I'm not going to deal with it again. I just want to remind you of the orderly process of coming to Christ and knowing Him better. We read the Bible. So simple. So simple. You know, we just sang a song that said, Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. We're looking for the living Word within the written Word. We read the Bible to know more of Jesus Christ. We do not read the Bible to acquire an arsenal of weapons to defeat Arminians or anyone else that disagrees with the doctrine of the Bible. That can come later. First of all, we want to know Christ, and we want to seek Him in the Scriptures. Look at Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Last Sunday I told you that Jesus told the Jews, search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Bible is a record of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't see him everywhere, you're not looking spiritually. Because he's everywhere. In Luke chapter 24, we have Jesus himself walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple disciples. Look at verse 27. Here Jesus is walking along incognito. He has not revealed himself to them. And they are worried and upset that their Jesus Christ had been crucified and was had been buried. And they're not sure to make of what's happening. And so Jesus begins explaining to them out of the scriptures, and we read in verse 27, and beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If we're truly walking with Jesus Christ, when the Bible is opened, we want to see Christ. Because when Jesus opens the Bible, he reveals himself because that's what it's for. Remember, the purpose of eternal life and giving us an understanding of this is that we might know the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Purpose of the Bible. All other purposes are subordinate to that. 
but it's to know Jesus Christ. And so he opened up Moses. Now, you know what Moses is. That's where many of you are in your reading of the Bible this year. Genesis, yes, even Leviticus, yes, even Exodus, yes, even Numbers and Deuteronomy, the books of Moses testify of Jesus Christ. Very plainly in some places, less plainly in others. But you should look for Jesus Christ when we open the scripture. We looked last Sunday at meditation, upon taking the time to be still and know that I am God. If we are busy, 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 and the only time that you can spare for Bible reading is to sit down and race through three chapters for five or ten minutes, you'll never know Christ. Because the Bible says we have to be still and commune with our own hearts and meditate upon these things and think of Him and allow yourself an undistracted mind for a few minutes at least to know Christ and for Him to come to you by His Spirit. We looked at self-examination, that we need to examine ourselves and ask the Lord to reveal hidden sin that we might not see. And He will. The spirit of a man who comes to him and says, show me what I do not see, but I can turn from it, he'll show you. And then we looked at singing. How that a true child of God that is seeking Jesus Christ and loves him wants to sing. And you know, not only do we want to sing if our heart is right with the Lord, because the Bible says that if we're filled with the spirit, singing will result. Right. That is one way of looking at singing. The other is we go to sing when we want to sing his praise and get rid of the rest of the world. Go to him by way of singing and let him come to you while you're singing his praise. David was a man after God's own heart. If David had lived in the New Testament, do you know what kind of a lover of Jesus Christ he would have been? He lived in the Old Covenant. He didn't see anything plainly. But yet look at David. He's inventing musical instruments and writing poetry for a great part of his life so that he could sing the praise of God. A man after God's own heart. We should be like that. We then saw our eighth point, that we should exalt the assemblies of a church. When we come to church, we should come with a heart prepared to see and to seek the Lord. We can't just drop in here, sing a few songs with 50% of our hearts dedicated to that singing, listen to the sermon 30%, and feel that we've done something noble because we've heard. We come here to seek and find the Lord Jesus Christ to meet with Him, to fellowship with Him, to see His glories revealed in the Bible and the intent that He has for our lives. So we want to exalt the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when we come and meet. Now, brethren, I want to move on to some other points. What I want you to see, what I'm going to do is show you that every commandment that we can find in the Bible lends itself toward honoring Jesus Christ with everything we do. It doesn't matter where you go, we're going to run into Jesus Christ being the central theme of our lives. Right. <clears throat> marriage. Point number nine. Perfect your marriage to be able to know Jesus Christ. You say, that's dirty. Do you mean you're going to tell me that I can't really know Jesus Christ until I get my marriage, until I improve my marriage, or I work on my marriage, or I maximize my marriage? That sounds like you're just using knowing Jesus Christ as leverage. No. That's what the Bible teaches. First of all, every word that we have in here that tells us what we ought to do, 
are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to Colossians chapter 3 and look at a few wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, obviously, should have the best marriages. Is that a a no-brainer? That if anyone takes the name of Christ, their marriage ought to be perfect compared to the world? Am I missing something? When we have unhappy marriages that even outsiders can see, how in the world can we call ourselves Christians? A Christian is a servant. A Christian is humble. A Christian is loving. A Christian is a peacemaker. How can a servant that is humble, loving, and a peacemaker not have a great marriage? It is very connected together. It's very closely tied together, and it's a disgrace. This church ought to have a set of marriages that puts the world to shame. It not ought, there ought not to be comparisons even need to be made. It's obvious. Because of the wholesome words of the Lord, they don't have the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have both. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 18, wives, here are some wholesome words from Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you love him, you want to be like Mary Magdalene? When, they, when he says wives, all women's ears perk up. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Amazing verse. You want to show how much you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to live like him? then submit yourself to your own husband. It is fit. It's appropriate. It's beautiful. It's seemly. It's correct. It's right in the Lord. Husbands, men, ears ought to perk up. Jesus Christ is speaking to us. You want to know him better? Here's what he thinks about marriage. You want to look more like him? Here's how he would be a husband if he were here. Husbands, Love your wives and be not bitter against them. That's the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we're really going to know him and we want to be like him, we want to have a marriage that reflects him. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I could read all the way from verses 22 through 33. And you should read them. I don't want to take too long on marriage. I just want to take long enough to remind you that if your marriage is not perfect, your relationship with Jesus Christ will not be perfect. I could read all those verses, and I hope that you will, but I want to read at verse 29. Let's get verse 28 so that you can follow the thought clearly. Verse 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Men, He's explaining how we ought to love. And he's just compared to Jesus Christ in verses that I'm not reading. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, brethren, let me stop right there, and I will have to admit my Partial ignorance. 
at what these verses mean. Because the mystery that Paul is describing here is beyond what I can tell you. I can tell you this. That the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, when he woke up from a nap and had quite a visitor, and her name was Eve, when he woke up from his nap and saw what God had made him, and was one very happy man, he said, this woman is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. She's part of me. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now that's what that first Adam said, and we, we can understand that. But then along we come to Ephesians chapter 5 and we read, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's not a mystery about our marriages. We can understand. But do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? There is a mystery hidden in the union of a man with his wife in marriage that is a picture and description of the Lord Jesus Christ with his church, right. of a union that is there that is so close that, sh- that it can be said, like Adam said of Eve, she was taken out of me, she's part of me, therefore she's going to be called woman because she was taken out of man. She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Jesus Christ says of us, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. Right here in verse 30 of Ephesians chapter 5, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now there is a union there that is hard for me to tell you about. That's why Paul says it is a great mystery. The union of Christ with his saints. Now what are we doing when we have a marriage that doesn't reflect that kind of unity and peace and love? The apostle goes on that last verse and says, I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. All of it predicated on the weight in this passage, the weight being Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There's the example for the men. The church submits herself and obeys cheerfully Christ. There's the lesson for the women. And together, it's a picture of the unity of Christ and his church. Right. What weight? And if we're defiling that picture, God have mercy on us. Amen. We have such lessons here in the word of God for us. If your marriage is not perfect to that degree that you are compromising in your marriage and not putting forth the effort that you should be in that marriage, you will not achieve the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, it is not picturing what he of the union that he has with you. And he is not going to let you get away with pretending that you can play with marriage, which is a picture of his relationship with you, and yet have that relationship with you if you're compromising. Yep. Now you know First Peter 3, 7, but I want you to look at it again. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Likewise... Ye husbands, whose ears should perk up? Men. If you really love the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know what I'm giving you right now? I'm his ambassador. These are his personal words to you. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, 
as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Let me point out a couple of things here. Your prayers will be hindered if we compromise in our marriage. I know I've taught you that in the past, but I ask right now how many of you have a perfect marriage. If there are any here, it's very few. This is something we need to work at if we're going to have a relationship with God. If you wonder sometimes why you don't see, love, and feel the presence of Christ in your life, I'll help you right now. You're compromising in your marriage. If you're a husband, you're not loving your wife as tenderly, as fully, as completely as you should be. If you're a wife, you are not reverencing and submitting to and obeying your husband like you should be. You will not have the relationship with Christ. So here we take this basic relationship of life, and if we're compromising in it, we cannot have a relationship with Christ. Now, if you're married to an unconverted spouse, First Peter chapter 3, the first six verses tell you that you can behave yourself perfectly even if your spouse is not converted. So see, it doesn't have to be a perfect marriage. It has to be a perfect attitude in the part of both parties or the party that's saved. The second thing I want to point out here is that marriage, we're heirs together of the grace of life. There's no male or female in, in Jesus Christ. We're heirs together. And if your marriage is not a spiritual companionship also, it is not the kind of marriage that God is looking for. Because look at what this verse says. It says, as being heirs together of the grace of life, and that is the knowledge that husbands had better have of their wives. In Christ, there is no male or female. In the practical workings of marriage, there definitely is male and female. There is a leader and a ruler, and there is a follower and an obeyer. The Bible teaches that plainly. But in Christ, there isn't any difference. We're heirs together. And that's why I spoke to you recently about having four little dents in the carpet in various places in your house where you pray with your wife. You know, frequent prayer in a marriage will build more intimacy and pleasure and peace than more frequent sex. You know, the most intimate marriage is not found in the Kama Sutra. The most intimate marriage is found in two people that also are heirs together of the grace of life. Because that's the greatest union. That's the union that's going to last forever. Not the marriage part of it, but we're going to be heirs together forever. It's the greatest gift. It's the greatest pleasure to share with one another is eternal life. When I look in the scriptures and I see Paul saying, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. If I shut off my spiritual mind and let my good carnal Christian mind run, I flip and I say, "There's Jesus Christ isn't in marriage. I mean, marriage is a practical relationship between a man and a woman for companionship and sex. I don't see Jesus Christ. But if I turn on that spiritual mind and I humble myself before him and I say, these are epistles, you know, that Peter wrote, Peter obviously, but Paul wrote Ephesians. If Paul wrote that and Paul said, I determined not to know anything save Jesus Christ and him crucified, I must be missing something. And so you humble yourself before the word of God and you see, he has set a standard for us. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.13, 
what I started with, which is what we want, it includes perfect marriages. Mm-hmm. A perfect marriage is too hard. Oh, no, it isn't. All it takes is two people who want to humble themselves before the Word of God. It's, but it takes knowledge, and I don't have that knowledge. No, the knowledge is given to you in verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. What knowledge should you remember? Give honor. She's a weaker vessel, but she's an heir together of the grace of life. And if you don't do those things, your prayers will be hindered. That's the knowledge. You got it now? Good. I just gave it to you. A godly marriage is a brother leading about a sister, and you know that's a theme that I'm harping on. If you're going to get married without looking for a spiritual companion to be an heir together with the grace of life, why do you want to get married? It's nothing but a big bag of problems. It is a big bag of problems. All of you young people, you are living the easiest life there is right now, being single. Man, wait till you get to add the complexity of another sinner in bed with you, that wakes up with you, that you have to eat with. Lord, have mercy on us. It's painful. That's in your carnal minds. Spiritually being heirs together of the grace of life and leading about a sister and both of you humbling yourselves before the Lord and loving the Lord supremely as the first chief goal in your life. Everything else is a piece of cake. The only time we have troubles and pain is when that is dimmed and that is not our chief aim. And then our flesh gets in the way and we have two angry, selfish, prideful sinners trying to be at peace. And it doesn't happen. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There is none. It's the voice of experience and the voice of your pastor from the Word of God. I've told my wife since I was a little boy and married her that if she wanted to be married to a perfect husband, she had to help keep me close to the Lord. And if both spouses were doing that for one another, they'd have perfect marriages. It's all that. It's that simple. It really is. So the point is this. If we want to know Jesus Christ, but we've got these pained relationships at home, I mean, really close to home called marriage, your spouse, you know, the missus, the mister, you're wanting to know Jesus Christ, but you've got a pained, less than the best relationship there, you're not going to have it with him. That's our first goal is to know him. You're not going to know him. Your prayers are hindered, and he's going to stifle that and quench it because the Holy Spirit is quenched. Second, we want to live like him before the world, And there we are giving a pitiful example to the world. All of our unconverted, unsaved relatives ought to be able to look at our marriages and know, look at those Christians. It is a disgrace to the cause of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. One more verse on marriage. And it's not the first five. Sorry, guys. Sorry, women. I've preached on the first five before. I want to look at verse 29. I can tell you this, if you're not fulfilling the first five, you're not fulfilling your marriage either. You're not going to know Christ. I'm so thankful he put those words in there. We're heirs together, the grace of life. That that puts marriage, it just jumps it up to a whole new level. 1 Corinthians 7.29, there was difficult times in the city of Corinth for believers. Keep that in mind as I read these words. 
But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. The point here is the Apostle Paul is saying, if you're married, because of the difficulty of the times and because of another factor he's going to mention down here in verse 33, he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Verse 32 had told us, he that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And when the time is short and the days are evil, those that are married should be as though they weren't. That means to keep pressing up the importance of spiritual duties in your life and not let even your marriage become a distraction from the Lord. The Lord knows that naturally speaking, marriage is going to distract you from serving Him as completely as you could otherwise. But when the time is short, when the days are evil, and they are evil, brethren, we live in wicked days where the love of many has waxed cold. One way we can survive is to use our marriages. He would have us to be without carefulness. But if to spouse, if two spouses will come together and serve each other in serving the Lord and knowing the Lord, we can be as though we weren't married. Right. Even though we are married. Because we've put the Lord first. Marriage is a natural anchor. And I don't mean by anchor a source of stability. I mean a heavy object that causes something to sink if it's not a godly marriage. And so we have a warning right here in the chapter on marriage to be as though you weren't married. That's to keep Christ first. All you young people, please hear me. I know the flutterings of your heart are weightier than the Word of God. And the love that fills your soul has more wisdom than your pastor and your parents and your grandparents. You are so deceived. Hear me. Shut off all your feelings and hear me. If you're not going to marry in the Lord and you're not going to marry with your first purpose as being having a spiritual companion to help you serve the Lord, you are doomed to misery. You're better off right now. Because you can attend on the Lord without distraction. If you can find one of the opposite sex that loves the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and wants to seek Him and you test that and you see that borne out by actions and works over time and they have a great love for the Lord, you put two people like that together and there's two people that can find Jesus Christ. And he will come and have fellowship with them in their marriage because they're heirs together of the grace of life. You don't do it, you're doomed. I need to go on. Chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. If we're to know Christ, we need to have marriages that please him. Otherwise, we hinder that relationship. And we wonder why can't I get to know Jesus Christ like it seems so evident that Paul knew him. Look at Paul. I want to be like Paul. Look at Mary. I want to be like Mary. Sweet, kind, loving Mary, breaking that precious box of alabaster ointment and anointing Jesus Christ. I heard of a debate in the congregation recently between two brothers who were debating how much they would spend 
on that box of alabaster ointment. I thought it was a little frivolous, but still glorious. And I hope that all of you think about that. How much would you spend? I like to hear that. Would you spend a day's wages? Would you give it all? Would you buy, would you spend everything you had trusting him to take care of you? I love that about Mary. Martha knew that meals had to be fixed, but Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and didn't care because she knew that if her Savior wanted to have food, he could simply speak the word and there'd be 12 basketfuls brought from another feeding. But she wanted to be at the feet of Jesus. How much would you pay? How much do you love him? And you wonder, I don't love him like that. I wish I was Mary Magdalene. I want to be Mary Magdalene. But he, he, he's not real enough to me. He's, I don't love him that dearly yet. And I want to. Well, I just showed you your marriage is an important place to start. Amen. Now I want to show you something else, and that's your children. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. These are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ also. And look what he says. He wants your children to be brought up in his nurture and admonition. Right, right. Now, if we do not bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, how can we get down on our knees and say, I want to know the Lord? Sorry, it's not going to work. All of it comes back to putting Jesus Christ first. I hope that we have homes and families that have been improving in Christ-centricity. Amen. But that they'll be even more Christ-central. It is not easy to train older children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's not easy to train younger ones. It takes a commitment. It takes a love of Christ. It takes a fear of His Word. It takes a respect for the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ to stop the day's activities, quit the games that the kiddies love so much, turn that stupid television off that they're watching, and to read your Bible with your children and to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But if you do it, the reward is great. Because you're training them to have that kind of a life also someday. It's a simple rule, brethren. Like beget like. Hypocrites beget hypocrites. Carnal Christians beget carnal Christians. I know that all of you rejoice that Buddhists beget Buddhists. I mean, we see, we see that. We see Buddhists beget Buddhists. I mean, they continue on in the same religion for generations. No break or interruption whatsoever. But brethren, that same thing that we see so clearly in pagan religion and is so disgusting about our race that no one seeks God, had better come home to and, and roost Amen. in our own hearts that if we are not living Christ-central lives, we're not going to beget Christ-central children. We will perpetuate a generation of carnal, hypocritical Christians. May God have mercy on us. Those are the wholesome words of Jesus. Look at Psalm 127. Psalm 127. I want to make everything in your Bibles Christ-central. Where do you think you got your children from? Do you think the stork brought your children? Do you want to call yours an accident? I've said that before. And from my wife and my great planning, they were. But they weren't from the Lord's. 
right. the value of any child to its parents ought to be that it's from the Lord. Amen. Not because it has their eyes. How precious. Do you know what your eyes are going to look like in just a few years? Yep. Ever seen a raisin? Ever seen a raisin left in the sidewalk for a week? That's what your eyes are. I'm serious. Yep. Take an eyeball out and put it in the sidewalk in the hot sun. It turns from a grape to a raisin real fast. That's what your eyes are going to look like, and that's what your children's eyes are going to look like because we've all got the same eyes. They are made from dust, and to dust they're going to return. Who cares if they have your eyes? You should love your children for this reason. Psalm 127 and verse 3, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. Your children are sent to you by God. And we have a commission as parents, and that is to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The nurture is the feeding and support and help of the Lord. And the admonition is His instruction on how to live. If we are compromising that by working too hard, being too distracted, and not taking the time to train our children, and we can all do better, and what I'm trying to press upon you and me is to do better, we will not have that ultimate relationship with Jesus Christ that we want because He has asked us to take care of a reward and an heritage He's given us. And if we're not taking care of it, He is not going to take care of us by fellowshipping with us with the fullness of His Spirit. It's hard. It's hard to gather your children. The older they get, the harder it becomes. I am an expert on this statement. It becomes harder and harder to get them together and to calm them down, and to lay on them the Word of God and try to promote in their lives a love for Christ. And all those of you with younger children, it's going to get harder and harder every day and every week. And there's an easy cure. Start now and don't stop. It'll be a part of their lives. They'll never know. They'll just assume that it's part of every home. Just make it a daily habit to train up our children. Oh, we love the story of Hannah. There's women in here that if we read the story of Hannah slow enough with enough emotion and melodrama in our voices, there'd be tears on their cheeks. But do you know what the glorious thing about Hannah is? She gave Samuel to the Lord. That's the glory. She gave Samuel to the Lord. And you read that last verse of 1 Samuel chapter 1, and he worshiped the Lord there. Five-year-old boy. As soon as he was weaned, he's worshiping the Lord. You know what that mother was doing while he was nursing. Yes, I've said that before, and I'll say it again, because I'm going to keep pressing the same thing. That is what we need to give our children. Amen. Who cares if you give them three square meals a day? A child can live on two. A child can live on one. A child doesn't need a square meal to live. The whole world testifies to that in the history of the world before us. You don't need three squares to live. You worry so much about their homework. Who gives a rip about their homework? That's not going to help them in their lives like a relationship with Jesus Christ. But that becomes the priority. Christ becomes subservient to it. But it wasn't with Hannah. It doesn't say he did his reading, writing, and arithmetic with Eli. It says he worshipped the Lord there. What if he couldn't read? He didn't need to because the Lord spake to him. And that's what he needs. And no, I'm not saying our children shouldn't read. But it's not the priority that our nation puts on it. Our nation has made education a god. 
They worship before a golden calf called education. And it has not improved the world. Give me some illiterate. Give me an illiterate man or a woman, boy or girl, that loves Jesus Christ and has been taught that with the same degree of emphasis and time. They'll be so much better off for it. There's ways to make a living without knowing how to read. It doesn't matter. In comparison, brethren, and if there's any of you still fighting me in your souls, you're twisted. Amen. You're perverted by this world and you don't even know it. Amen. Hannah is the, is the godly example of a mother. And he worshipped the Lord there when he was weaned. I thank God for a mother that got so excited the first time she was able to tell me the name Jesus after I was born. Now, she had worked on it for nine months while I was in her womb. But you just ask her after the service to tell, to ask her what she said, what song she used or what verse she used to say the name of Jesus for me to hear right after I was born. Ask her after the service and see if she doesn't get all emotional over it because the most important thing to her was giving her children the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have a Christ-centered family or do you have a form of godliness family? You say, we've got the truth. How can we have a form of godliness? We have a form of godliness in the truth. That's how we have it. It's still a form. Do we have Christ-centered families? Child training is going to create adults that love Jesus Christ. It's a promise. Oh, brethren, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You train up your children to love Jesus Christ when they're old. Guess what they're going to be doing? Loving Jesus Christ. Praise his holy name. This church can grow and be here for as long as Jesus tarries before he comes if we'll train our children to know Christ. What greater gift can you give your kids? I want to give them a college education. That's America. Give them a college education so that they can learn all the pagan philosophy of the world and be corrupted and never be able to think again for themselves and never be able to know Jesus Christ. That's my goal for my children. What's your? That's a goal? Why do you want to destroy your child? Yes, I know there's technical fields that can use a professional degree. Don't fight me. What's important? Right. Most of the world never had degrees. Most of the history of the world never read and never had a Bible. Most of the men you read about in the Scriptures did not read and did not have the Scriptures. There were no books. They didn't have a library in their house. The scribes knew how to read. The scribes knew how to copy Scripture. But those children were taught the fear of the Lord. And they could hear it read distinctly and the sense given and they would understand. It doesn't ever say in the Old Testament that any family sat down and read the Word of God. They had little chunks that they would hear and they would come home and they'd write it on their doorpost. It was so precious to them that they'd hear that man of God reading the law of God distinctly and they'd come home and write it on the doorpost. We need to keep Christ first. Right. Yes, every young man needs training in, the, in a field. But let's love our children the way that the Lord wants us to love them. If we get our priorities mixed up, I promise you, on the authority of the Word of God, 
because he is a jealous God and he wants to be honored above all else. If you get your priorities mixed up and you wonder why I have lost my fervency for the Lord, I'm telling you why right now. You have let the world dictate your priorities when they ought to be the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Brethren, turn to Matthew chapter 25. Turn to Matthew 25. Can you have a close relationship with Jesus Christ and know him and his Father and have someone in this assembly that you're not getting along with very well? Nope. <laughs> so look what we have now. We've got, we've got to run into another situation. That's the love of the brethren. The love of the brethren is subservient to loving Christ. You know how, you know how closely connected they are? If a man say that he loves God and doesn't love those that are begotten of him, He's a liar. Amen. God will not allow you to have a relationship with him if you've got a compromised relationship with other children of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. I read in Matthew chapter 25, and I just want to encourage all of you to love one another and to serve one another. It says in verse 40, Jesus Christ taking recognition of all the good deeds that the saints had done during their lives, even though the saints, when they stood before the holiness of God, guess what they say? When did we ever do anything for you to remember? Because in the sight of the holiness of God, all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags, except Jesus takes recognition of them. And he says in verse 40, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And so this morning I wanted to commend several of you for having done it to the least of these your brethren. If we want a relationship with Jesus Christ, we must love one another. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. There's so many verses here to read. Let's look at, let's start at verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. Do you perceive it? I hope, I trust you do. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Amen. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Amen. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. We do not know that we're of the truth because we can read a confession of faith and say, I agree with every point that's in that confession of faith. We assure our hearts that we are of the truth by the willingness we have to lay down our lives and serve one another. The love of the brethren. Verse 2 of chapter 5, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Verse 1, the second half, And every one that loveth him that begat, loveth him also, that is begotten of him. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. How do we really get close to Jesus Christ so we're really looking like Christians? By the love ye have one to another. And in our study of Acts so far, have we not seen that those people were willing to give up everything for one another? They wanted to be with each other every day. They willingly sold their goods and gave the proceeds to the apostles to make distribution to every man as every man had need. That church was filled with the Holy Ghost. They were close to God. They loved the Lord. That is the purest church that has ever existed. 
When the Holy Spirit was on them in his fullness and his great blessing, look at how they treated one another. May God have mercy upon us to do that. We are not the disciples of Jesus Christ if we don't love one another. All men shall know that you are my disciples by the love ye have one to another. So if you're not loving one another, we're not his disciples in any great way. And if we're not his disciples in any great way, we're certainly not very close to him or knowing him or living like him. A true church of saints of Jesus Christ, when someone comes in from the outside and sees them in their conversation and activities with one another, knows these people are different. That should always be a testimony of the churches of Jesus Christ. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have those 15 phrases of true love. Amen. Charity suffereth long and is kind and so forth. Did you know that that is described in that particular place, chapter 13, stuck between chapters 12 and 14? Chapters 12 and 14 are speaking on gifts in the church, apostles, prophets, miracles, tongues. Those two chapters are all about gifts. And right in the middle, we have this chapter on love. Somebody must have got mixed up. They must, Paul must have meant to put chapter 13 down at the, no, there were no chapters when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians. He stuck all that about love right in there because he says, let me show unto you a more excellent way of serving Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's all of chapter 13. It's love. Right. He says, what if I was to speak in the tongues of angels? What if I had such wisdom and knowledge of the mysteries of God that I could declare anything to you? What if I was so sacrificial that I gave my life? It all amounts to nothing, sounds like nothing, and is nothing, except for love. Faith, hope, and charity, these three are still abiding in earth. But the greatest of these is charity. The love of the brethren is an ingredient for us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. How can we say, when we're down on our knees, begging him, which I hope is part of your prayers, begging him to draw nigh to us, that we might draw nigh to him, And yet we're harboring in our heart grudge, bitterness, anger, hatred, offense against brothers or sisters. That prayer is not an effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. It will not be answered. And we will have those dull, cold feelings toward the Lord that we despise. I exhort you and me and all of us to not have anyone, don't, Don't trust yourself because you have a great relationship with 90% of the congregation. Go after the one you have the poorest relationship with. Seek that one out. Pray for that one. And see if the Lord doesn't bless you for being like him. Because when he hung on the cross of Calvary, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think they knew what they were doing. They were crucifying him. They knew how to crucify, and they were doing it well. They didn't know that he was the Son of God. But when somebody wrongs you, are you able to say they don't know what they're doing? Lord, forgive them. Are you able to pray for those that despitefully use you? If you can do that, the Lord will bless you. Brethren, I didn't make very much progress this morning. But what I want to impress upon you is that every part of your life I don't care if you're a servant working for a master or you're a master employing servants. I don't care if you're a husband or a wife, if you're a mother or a father, or your children. 
If you're not honoring your parents, there is no way you're going to have a close relationship with God. If you're not working hard for your master, you will not have a close relationship with Christ. All these areas are the areas by which we obey his wholesome words so that we might know him better. Right. And by keeping all these commandments, we live him out before the world in the way that he wants us to live him out. He wants us to obey his commandments so that when men look at us, they by our good works see him. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. May the Lord bless us with marriages, families, and one another to love each other. And may he bless us with a relationship that is second to none in this world. Amen. Amen.